And as we grow, you ought to be, in time, you ought to be taking over areas of leadership, and you ought to be growing through that, and, and the book of Romans is absolutely essential. I told you earlier that I talked to you about the, the church. Uh, Larry called Steve this week and, and uh, asked him to come over, and Steve wasn't quite sure what he, he wanted to talk about, but as we went over there, uh, he went over there, Larry kind of laid out that, uh, you know, that the reason why we have been so long in working that out, and I, I've told you this before, but just kind of give everybody a heads up where we're at. You know, we were, we're looking at getting the downstairs, and uh, uh, the upstairs has the uh, antique thing on one end and then the craft store on the other end. And, and a couple of months ago, uh, the man that owned the craft store passed away unexpectedly. He had a heart attack. And his wife was left with all of this to try to do herself. And what happened was is that, uh, you know, immediately Larry called us and he says, hey, wouldn't you rather have the upstairs? And obviously the answer is yes, the upstairs already there. About the only thing we'd have to do, the upstairs to move in, uh, would be to put down chairs and maybe just fix a few things. It's ready to go uh, versus putting in $25,000 and rehabbing the downstairs. So uh, absolutely. So he was giving her time to work all this out because he didn't want to put pressure on her with her losing her husband. And, uh, you know, she didn't know whether she was going to sell the place or she was going to uh, you just get out of the business altogether uh, and just sell it out that way. She obviously would like somebody to come in and buy it because that way she gets more money out of it for her security, but then that puts us downstairs again because somebody's going to keep it going. Well, she's been trying to work through this, and he's been very patient. And I told him, I said, hey, look, Larry, it ain't like we don't have a place to meet. I said, I want to do what's right all around, so you just take whatever time you need. Well, Larry, I guarantee you, Larry... Uh, this church is not out of his thoughts much during the during his days now, and he is absolutely committed to getting us in there. And in fact, he's going to go ahead and start rehabbing some of the downstairs at his own expense that will already be done when we do get in there. And then if this lady, and she's going to have to make a decision here in the next couple of weeks, uh, at least the next month, uh, just because of the financial things that's going on. So it's right on schedule. It's on God's schedule. And... Uh, you know, that's the most important thing. And uh, I'm in, I, 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 we got to move out of here in time. Uh, it would be great to have our own place. And uh, Larry has been so good to us. He's the guy that owns everything around here. He built it all. And he's been worked over, bent over backwards for us. And um, it's a situation where it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and where, upstairs or downstairs. And I would be willing to wait another six, seven months if it ensured that we were going to get the upstairs because it is the way to go. Uh, but you know what? God has that for us, and uh, so we'll just see where it goes. But that's where we're at with that. And I, and I threw that into the message simply because, you know what? We are growing. We started with about 14 people, and, you know, we, we, this is what we've got today, plus the ones that are out of town or wherever they're at. And uh, it's, it's a thing where as this thing grows, men and women are going to have to step up to the plate to be able to work with all that goes on. There's no way one man can, can, can try to run it or should even try to run it. It's the thing where the ministry is for all of us to do, and it's, it's a key thing. So the book of Romans is absolutely essential. And uh, when you start to look at this in chapter 3, we've been dealing with the fact of God's righteousness. We looked at the last couple of weeks in chapter 3 as the sinfulness of man, and we talked about that the greatest aspect of God, the greatest aspect of God is when you understand how sinful we are, how God would ever want to have a relationship with us, uh, much less give us uh, His righteousness that we might have everything that God wants us to have. You know, I know that probably 
most of you this morning, uh, because some of you are younger Christians and, and uh, uh, most of you do not probably c- completely grasp the concept of, of the overall plan of God. But what a marvelous plan it is. You know, the element from Genesis to Revelation in your Bible, the element of time within the vastness of eternity, the plan that God really has. Certainly you don't think that, that all God's plan was was for about us to be here on planet Earth for this 7,000 years. We've got eternity on both ends with a little parenthesis called time in the middle. And that 7,000 years of man history on earth is just a process, really. Really it is. If you just want to grasp the basic concepts, I can tell you this. There's eternity. If this pulpit right here was the 7,000 years of man from Genesis to Revelation, what we basically have on the other two ends of this pulpit is eternity. Eternity past and eternity future. And so many times because we're so... We, we, we just don't get from the Bible what we need or maybe we don't get the help we need or uh, for whatever reason. We as Christians, we always focus on this time period. You know, you know on this time period alone, we're just, a, we're just a, about an, an inch of that. And so many times we forsake the whole thing that God's doing and we just focus on that one little inch that, that really concerns us. And you can't do that as a Christian. You've got to understand the big plan of what God's doing. God's plan is going to be fulfilled out into eternity. Right now, God, this 7,000 years, this, this little process of time here, God is working through the process of getting, uh, get, getting man to that point in his life uh, in his, in, as God establishes his kingdom. He's, he's getting man his righteousness. He's working with man. He's giving every individual the opportunity to decide what that person wants to do. So when God moves out into eternity... He has everybody with him that is chosen to be there. Romans chapter 3 helps us understand a little bit better the great doctrine of the righteousness of God. How you and I as sinners, how's you and I, how you and I, who people who were alienated from God, who had nothing that God wanted, how in that, in that state God would still give us His righteousness and shows us how that process takes place and how that righteousness is applied. All through chapter 3, really all through the first three chapters, Paul's been laying the foundation uh, for that understanding of that great doctrine. Do you know the Jew and the Gentile, we've seen this, the Jew and the Gentile may be different as far as culture is concerned, but we now understand that they are the same as far as our sin is concerned. It doesn't matter that one had the law and one didn't. We're all sinners. We fully understand that now. And we're going to start reading here in verse 20 and come down through 31 today. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week with man's sinfulness and begin to see the great building blocks of the doctrine of salvation. You know, your life and my life is basically about bearing fruit. And there's going to come a time in your life that that you're going to have the opportunity to win somebody to Christ. God is going to put you in the right scenario. God's going to put you in the right place at the right time with the right person. And uh, you're going to be able to be the attending physician at that spiritual new birth. And I talked about a couple of weeks ago the Romans road, you know, where you go in the Bible. And you've seen on Thursday night where people are continually getting saved. And I call on folks to deal with them. And, and as this church grows and as we move into the new building and, and all the things that we do, it's going to require everybody getting up to speed with the ability to be able to understand how to, to win somebody to Christ. But you know what? I look at winning people to Christ just like I do the Bible. It's not enough for you just to know the process. 
It's not enough as far as I'm concerned to just, to just get up there and be able to uh, go through the Romans road. What really makes it work for you and the person that you're dealing with and makes it w the depth that it needs to be is not just the ability for me to give you a, a sketchy outline of how go to this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse, have them pray this, this, or this, and they're saved. It's more important to me than that that you understand the great doctrines behind salvation. I can tell pretty quickly by listening to a pastor or a preacher begin to preach. I can almost assess within 15 minutes of his preaching, sometimes less than that, what his relationship is with the Word of God. There's some guys when they begin to preach that the moment they begin to talk uh, about anything in the Bible, you see a real shallowness in what they, what they are saying. There's no depth to it. Oh, it's good, and it, it's something you can get something out of. I'm not saying that. But there's no meat to it. There's no depth to it. It's a thing where you understand that the guy probably what he's preaching, he read someplace or somebody taught him, but he's never experienced it himself. And then you hear somebody get up there and, and whatever they say, whatever they do, they could be the most simple, basic thing in the world, but it just drips with depth, uh, but underneath the surface of material that is waiting to get out. I, I, I like to build people that, that they're like volcanoes. And underneath the surface of that young man or that young lady is like a boiling volcano of Bible doctrine that just is trying to ooze out of every crack that you, in, your, in, in your body. Everything that you say, everything that you do, it's like it's just pushing power behind you that you can tell that what I just saw and what I just got was really good, but boy, there's a force behind that 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 person has a depth in the Word of God of understanding not just what they're saying, but the depth of, of it as far as the Bible's concerned. I don't want to train people just to go down the Romans road. I want you to learn to understand the great truths of salvation so you, like that volcano, are just completely filled with the great teachings and the doctrines of the Bible that whatever you say, whatever, wherever you preach someplace, or you give your testimony, or you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody, talking with them at work or whatever, the, what you know about the Bible is the driving force behind everything that, that you say. So let's begin today and look at Romans chapter 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. What? By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. 
Do we then make the void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Father, we thank and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you do for us, for what you've given us. We pray, Father, today as we look through your word, you'll help us understand these great truths. Lord, I pray you'll build men and women in this church, men and women that will want to not just uh, learn what the Bible says, but they want to know the whys. They want to be able not just to repeat something that I say, uh, even when teaching them the Bible. I don't want them to go home on Thursday night and just be able to call up somebody in the phone and, and rattle off what they heard. I want them to, to have the depth of understanding every aspect of the Bible, every aspect. And truly, Lord, the great doctrine of salvation. Lord, it's the, it's the number one doctrine that touches everything in our Christian lives. When we look at this today and we break this down into the great uh, 12 characteristics or the doctrines of salvation, Lord, uh, they'll have a better understanding of how that this great concept affects every aspect of our life. And not understanding it first is a tragedy. And Lord, that's why so many of God's people don't have the characteristics and the qualities of Christ in their life. We ask you now to bless us. Lord, help me to speak the things that need to be said. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. You can see that we're already in Romans again, and we're into that, that tough way of it's written. And again, I've said it many, many times, Paul writes the book of Romans much like a lawyer writes a legal brief or a legal document. And it's, uh, it's, for you just to sit down and, uh, and to try to figure it out, it's the, it's the terminology, the way he says things, that makes it appear to be so complicated. And what we've done through this book, and I've encouraged you to week by week, I've basically taken these passages, we've taken them in small blocks, and we've broken down the verses and told you verse by verse what he's saying. And if you uh, hopefully are getting a running commentary that every week you're going home and putting those in the book of Romans by these verses, that'll really help you put it all together. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to break down these verses and see what he's saying here and uh, how it fits into the overall concept of what we've learned in the book of Romans. Now he says in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now this verse is a, is a really good defining verse on how the Old Testament law applies to you and me in the Old Testament. And this is one of these places in the Bible that is very, uh, a very good place that helps us grasp some things. Now what he's saying here, and he's saying a couple of things. First of all, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. What we're talking about in this chapter is getting God's righteousness. And when you get God's righteousness, we get justified. And what he's saying here, the first thing he's saying is simply the law cannot save us. You know, the law, you can't get saved by the law. And uh, today, by the time we're done with this, you're going to fully understand how God intended the law to work and how it does work. But there's people running around this world today to think if they keep the Ten Commandments or they do unto others before they do it to them, and, you know, in the golden rule, that, uh, that uh, that's going to cut them some, some slack with God. And the truth of the matter is, he says right there, and it's a great place to understand that the law, the Old Testament law, the things that were written to the Jews, they can't save us. They couldn't save the Jews. They can't save anybody. And because the, the, the thing that you have to do, if the law was going to save you, it could only save you if you could keep it. And the Bible says that you and I can't keep it. And somebody said, well, I keep most of it. 
you start to witness to somebody sometime and you say, hey, have you died today? You know for sure if you go to heaven, sometime they'll come back and they'll say, well, uh, you know, I don't know. And they'll say, well, you know what, do you realize you're a sinner? They'll say, no, I've never killed anybody. I've never did this, I've never did that. But you see, the truth of the matter is, nobody keeps all the law. And you want to know the downside to that? Bible says over there in the book of James, if you keep the whole law and you break just one, you're guilty of it all. The law can't save you and me. Keeping the law won't work. One, you can't keep it. It won't work for you. That was James 2.10 that I gave you a second ago. The law wasn't strong enough uh, to save anybody uh, until Christ showed up. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the faith. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, what Christ did, and this is where you begin to understand the basis of salvation. Now we've talked about in Romans chapter 3 a lot of, a lot of gloomy things. Now here comes the bright spot. The gloomy thing is this. We're terrible. We're rotten. We're vile. The terrible thing is we, we, should have, we all should be in hell this morning screaming for water. We all should be burning like a torch for all of eternity. That's the downside of things. The good side thing is, for God so loved the world, see? The good time of it is that God made a way. And that way is not through anything you can do or I can do. When you begin to understand the basics of salvation, you know what you grasp? You grasp the great concept that Christ came down and kept the law for you and for me when I could not keep it. He came down here and he lived his life. He never violated the law. You ought to go through the gospel sometime and look how that the scribes and the Pharisees, that's exactly what they tried to get him to do. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil tries to get him to break the law. All through his life, the scribes and the Pharisees are coming up and they're asking him about the law, but they're changing the wording of the law that if he commits to it, he would break it. He was faced with everything that imaginable that human man could try to get another human man to break the law, and yet the Bible says he did not break the law. You know why he didn't break it? He didn't break it because we needed him to keep that law because we could not keep it for ourselves. The first great concept of salvation is the fact that I couldn't keep the law. And Christ came down and kept it by fulfilling the law. How did He fulfill the law? By not breaking it. He fulfilled the law, and by fulfilling that law, He did what I could not do for myself. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. Then, how does the law affect me as a New Testament Christian? If it can't save me, if it doesn't have the power to save me, how in the world can the, what can the law do for me? What good is it to me? And of course, this is the second thing that you find in this great verse of chapter, uh, verse 20. And it, the law affects me as a Christian. Uh, it, it, it shows me that I'm a sinner. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. You know, uh, people walk around today and they say, well, you've got to keep the law. You've got to keep the law. Well, first of all, nobody, we've already seen, you can't keep it. The second great concept, God never gave the law for you and me to keep. Do you know that? 
God net when God gave the Ten Commandments, it wasn't like, well, somebody out there surely will keep five or six of them. Somebody out there will keep nine of them. Somebody out there will keep most of them. He never intended for you and I to keep them to begin with. What the law originally did, and God's intended purpose of the law, you need to understand this, God intended the law to show you and me how far we fell short of the glory of God. It's my schoolmaster. You know what a teacher does for you when you go to school? He or she keeps you accountable. They not just tell you and show you what you need to learn. They also show you what you haven't learned. They call them tests. And the law, like a schoolmaster, shows you and I where we fail. It wasn't given so you and I could keep it. It was given to show you and me how an absolute standard. An absolute standard that no human being could keep. And God gave that law to show me and to show you how far I fall short from what God expected and then fulfilled it through His Son and He kept it for me when I couldn't keep it for myself. What an incredible concept. And as this thing begins to build, you begin to see and understand this great, great, great. Now look at verse 21. But now, all right, we understand verse 20. But now, but now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Now you say, what is he saying here? He's saying in verse 21, the righteousness of God without the law. That's what he's saying. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. You know what he's saying? He's saying the one who kept the law is now manifested as the righteousness of God. That man is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the manifestation of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Great is the mystery. God was manifested in the flesh. And when he's saying there, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, he's talking about Christ coming. Then look what he says. Look what he says being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying that in the law and in the prophets. The law now is, is the first five books of the Bible, basically. The prophets would represent from Samuel all the way up to Second Chronicles. In your Bible, he's saying that there's a witness in the law and the prophets of this righteousness coming by Christ and affecting a man like it affected you and me. And obviously, uh, if you get a little bit later on, and we will in Romans chapter 4, you'll find that the man that represents the law, uh, that from the law, would be Abraham. And the man under the, and you'll find that in Romans 4, 3. In Romans 4, 6, and 7, you'll find the one from the prophets will be David. Those two men, and we're going to study their lives in a great way when we get a little bit into Romans here, because you cannot understand the righteousness of God in the book of Romans without understanding these two men's lives. I'm going to tell you something else. I don't believe you'll ever be the man or the woman God wants you to be in, its, in your totality as far as really understanding the concept of your relationship with God till you understand the life of Abraham and the life of David. And that's why when we get into that part of Romans, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take the time and build their lives into this. They're an incredible concept. You know what Abraham represents? 
Abraham represents how that we get God's righteousness without doing anything. The Bible says that God took Abraham out there in a starry sky. God saw his heart. And the Bible says that he said to Abraham, Someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. You know how he got saved? Believe in what God said about the stars. You know how you got saved? Believe in what God said about his dead son on the cross. You got salvation without nothing. Abraham got it without nothing. That's why he's a witness of God's righteousness in the Old Testament pointing toward the New Testament. David. You know how David under the prophets fits in? David is a great example. Abraham represents getting, getting, it, getting God's righteousness by faith without works. And David represents keeping it by faith. Keeping God's righteousness with faith without works. You know the story of David. Story of David was the fact that uh, he was a king. And David, David went out and he saw Bathsheba. Got involved with Bathsheba. And through the process of time, he, he, he gets her pregnant. And then he figures out and concocts a plan. And he winds up killing her husband so he can save his own reputation. Now, the problem with that is simply this. Under the Old Testament law, there was no sacrifice for murder or adultery. Now, if you went up and popped your neighbor in the nose or stole his cow or stole his dog or stole whatever or broke this or broke that, and, and you, uh, you could make amends for that. In the law, there was provision for the transgression against men uh, to a certain point. But you kill a man in the Bible with premeditated figuring it out how I'm going to do that, there's no sacrifice for that. You could not bring a sacrifice for that. The only penalty for that was death. You commit adultery in the Old Testament, there's no sacrifice for that. There's nothing you can do to appease God. The price tag for that is death. And what happened? When you study the life of David, you'll find in Psalms 89 and Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1 through 3, a little concept. And oh, little concept. What a concept. You'll find a little phrase, the sure mercies of David. God said to David, because of your heart, and what you've done with my word. I'm going to, I'm not going to kill you. And even though there is no sacrifice you can bring. And this is what got David in his great prayer in Psalm 53. This is what really changed David's life. David saw that he deserved to die. On two counts, there was no sacrifice. But you know what God said? Based on your attitude of heart with the word of God... Even though there's no sacrifice, I'm going to impute my righteousness to you and I'm not going to take it back and I'm going to give unto you the sure mercies of David. You know what that was? The sure mercies was the fact that God wasn't going to kill David even though under the law God was obligated to. You know what he did? He stepped in and intervened in David's sin in his life just like he did yours and mine. There was no way to pay the price. David in an Old Testament scenario, he's under the law. There's no way he can get that fixed. You and me, under the law, there's no way we can fix our sin debt. God looked down and said, because of his heart, I'm going to come in and stay the death sentence. And in your life and in my life, when nothing else could do, when there was no offering, nothing you could do, no sacrifice could be made, Christ came down and said, I'll make a way for Bob Alexander to get to heaven. Glory to God. Amen. 
Now, when you look and you understand that concept, you realize, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all upon them that believe, and there is no difference. Jew or Gentile today? Hey, God gave you two examples. One in the Old Testament, God got righteousness by faith without works. The other one kept God's righteousness by faith without works. And neither one of them had anything to do to get it. That's the example of what's coming. That's the example of what Christ did for me. And that's why it's absolutely so important for you and me to understand the lives of Abraham and the lives of David. I don't know of two other men in the Bible. I don't know of two other men in the Bible that probably represent the normal scheme of our lives and the ups and the downs and the end and the outs and the problems that we all go through more like those two lives. And that's why, of course, he picked those. All right, look at verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, that's a great verse. Now, that's a verse when you're winning somebody to Christ that you can pull out of Romans 3 and bring back up there when you're talking about them being a sinner. But in the context here, it's a great, it's a great verse. And I, I thank God every day of my life. And you will too probably once you understand what I'm about to say. You know why God, when it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know the why the reason God used Abraham and David as an example? Did you ever stop and consider in this chapter, uh, maybe, maybe a little farther along than most people, did you ever stop and consider why he picked the lives of Abraham, the lives of David to represent what he's talking about here, or their lives in general? Do you ever wonder why he allowed them to go through the things that they went through, dealt with them the way that he did? You ever wonder why that God leaves those examples, and there's many more all through the Old Testament? You ever wonder why it is? I'll tell you why. It shows you, it shows you that every man's going to fail. And by understanding that, you're going to recognize that in life, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to fail. You know, we have, a, we have, we have weird ideas of failure in Christianity. We really do. We really do. We're so judgmental about other Christians. And it's like that we, you know, we see somebody struggle in a problem or a sin. And uh, you know what? We become so self-righteous in it. And we become so puffed up because, you know, in our minds, you know, we could never do that or never accomplish that. And, and the bottom line is simply this. Let me tell you something. Everybody fails. And the reason why God picked two men in the Bible and Abraham's failures are, are, are it, 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 we'll see it when we go through it. It's one of the greatest studies that you watch how he, he, he gets two steps He's a perfect picture of every Christian. He gets God's righteousness. He makes three or four steps forward. Then he takes two back. Then he makes five or six forward more. Then he takes two more back. And then he goes a little bit farther. Then he goes back again. His whole life is based on five steps forward, two back. And the two back aren't pretty. Sometimes they cause problems in his home. Problems in his own life. Problems with the people around him. But through the... Through the through the studying his life, you see that he, and so many times people focus on the, the, when somebody fails in something. You know what failure is to me? Failure is two things to me. And when I look at your life, and that's why I say all the time, I don't care where you've been, what you've done, I don't care. It's immaterial to me. As long as you're where you need to be with God right now, that's all I ask, and we take from here and move on. You know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because failure in my mind is two things. One, it's getting saved and never doing anything in your life. Or it's getting saved, starting going along, getting knocked down, not getting back up. Now that's failure. 
Failure is for you to get saved, start coming to a church, this church, any church, or just begin your relationship with God and never meaningfully putting your life on the line or doing something that's going to cost you something or put you in jeopardy and growing, never taking yourself out of the equation and putting God first and just never doing nothing. That's failure. Heard a man give a speak one, talk one time and he said, you know what? He said, you know what a successful man is? A successful man is a man who takes the bricks that life throw at him and the bricks that people throw at him and take the Word of God and mold them into a sure foundation. Boy, there's a lot of truth in that. Failure is you're never getting off the launching pad. Failure is getting saved and some of you have been saved for 10 years and you're no farther along spiritually than the day you got saved. That's failure. And then failure, I don't care how many times you fall. I don't care if you fall down five. You may have some particular thing you struggle with or you may just struggle with a number of things. I don't know. And it gets easier as time goes on. You may fall down 500 times a day. I don't care as long as the end of the day you're still standing. It's all that matters. It's all that matters. This pious attitude, you know, that you know you need to not do this and then failure because you fell here or you fell there. Let me tell you something. Everybody falls. Do you get back up? That's all I ask. That's all I ask. Do you really want to go into the judgment seat of Christ? Do you really want to stand before God with a starched uniform? With a glittering sword? And a spotless shield? Do you really want to stand over Him with your boots shined and your, your uniform pressed? And that shard and that spear and that sword and that shield glittering and all that. No, I don't. I want to walk in there with dents from that shield from one end to the other. I want that sword rusted. I want it nicked. I want it beat up. I want the handle coming off of it. I want it. I want God to know I'm here and I'm here, but I used it. Amen. Walking in there. Well, look at me. I didn't get dirty at all. God said, hit the road. You're going to get dirty now for a thousand years. Get on out there and play in the dirt. Now, I don't want to go in that way. I want to have my uniform ripped. I want to have my knees out. I want to have, I want to have, I want to have nicks and band-aids all over everything. I want God to know I fell and I got down in the mud, but I'm still here. That's failure when you can't do that. Sometimes it's hard to get back up, but you know what? Get up anyhow. That's why he put those men in there. That's why he used two men, Abraham and David, and a lot more, to show you two examples that men that failed all of their lives. Their lives are totally imperfect. Their lives are an absolute disaster in many cases. But you know what? In both cases, they kept moving forward. And in time, they got to where God wanted them to be. Not going to say you're going to be that way all the time. You'll get to it. But brother, there's some battles you have to fight. There's some things you have to determine in your heart you're going to do for God and then get up and do it. You know, when God looks at you and me, really, when God looks at the human race, you know what He sees? You know what He sees? He sees two kinds of people when He looks at mankind. He sees sinners in Christ, say people, sinners Outside of Christ, unsaved people. Now, if you want a nice analogy of that, get up early on a Saturday morning. Get in your car and just drive around your neighborhood. You know what you'll see? You'll see exactly two examples of that. And you'll get a better appreciation for what I'm saying. 
I drive down my street and there's three or four garbage cans out because trash day's coming. Those garbage cans are all beat up, rusted. Some of them, you can't even pick them up because the bottoms are rusted out. They're all beat up and rusted and they're just absolutely a mess. Then you drive around the corner and, boy, somebody, very obvious, somebody just went to Home Depot, Walmart, bought a brand new garbage can. Oh, it shines. No rust. Beautiful. Galvanized. Oh, it's the most incredible garbage can you ever saw in your life compared to the old one. But you know what the reality is? They both got garbage in them. Who do you think you are, Mr. Galvanized Garbage Can? Who do you think we are? Just because you shined up on the outside? Just because you look at some garbage can over here, it's got all dented and beat it up, and you think you're better? You both got garbage in you. That's how God sees it. That's how we need to see it. One sinner in Christ, one sinner out of Christ. You know what the example in the Old Testament is? Genesis chapter 6. Story you know in the ark. If you know that ark in Genesis chapter 6 is a picture of Christ, you realize that? That, that ark's a picture of Christ. You ever notice that study back there that there was, a, there was a door in the side and that's where they went in and that's where they came out? And going in through that door is what preserved them from the disaster? You know when the church started and you know when you and I got in Christ and the concept is when that Roman soldier took that spear and put a hole in his side. Because the blood came out, we got to go in. And when they were in that ark for 360 days, when they were in that ark all that time, the raging world of God's judgment was coming down on everything and everybody in the world. Were they any better than the people that drowned it? Absolutely not. Should they have been out there just like everybody else? Absolutely. Should they, is there any reason why Noah and his family and his wife were any better? Absolutely not. The only difference in one got in the ark and one didn't. You're either in the ark this morning or you're not. But I ain't any better than you. I ain't any better than you. I like what Bubba said down at the mission the last time. I've used it many, many times. And don't give him any credit for it at all. He stole enough of my stuff. <laughs> He's preaching to those unsaved people down there. And he says, you know what? And unsaved people think this. They think, and he says, I'm not better than you. I'm just better off than you. Amen. Not better than any anybody. We're all garbage cans. We just like to shine ourselves up. And sometimes in the process of rubbing ourselves and shining us up, we forget what we smell like on the inside. Ah, oh, Romans 3, verse 24. Oh, I love this one. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hey, I want to tell you something. The greatest concept about getting God's righteousness and the greatest concept of my salvation, the greatest concept in the world, is free. You couldn't pay for it. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't work for it. It's free. It's free. God gave it to you. From Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 with the tree of life, He said freely eat. To Revelation chapter 22 verse 17 with the water of life, He says freely drink. And everywhere in between there, God's righteousness is free. Boy, I thank God. If we had to pay for it, we could never merit it. If we had to buy it, we could never afford it. 
I thank God that God in His providence looked down and saw us as beggars without hope, without Christ, and gave us the ability to get in freely. Oh, yeah. But the first thing the devil does when he shows up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2 with Adam and Eve, or Eve, Eve Adam wasn't there. First thing he does, God had just told her that of the fruit of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. And as soon as the devil shows up, he countermanded what God said, and even the devil take the word freely out. And from that point in history, man's been trying to tell you, you can work your way to heaven. Man's been trying to tell you there's something you got to do. These idiots are walking around this world saying, well, you got to be baptized to get to heaven. Well, my dear friend, what in the world did Christ have to come down and agonize on the cross for if all you had to do was get baptized? Why did Jesus just say, boys, get baptized? You know what you're telling me? One, you don't know the Bible. Two, you do not understand the substitute and the agony that he paid on Calvary's cross to make that kind of statement. Well, you've got to be baptized to get to heaven. What was the death for then? Somebody says, well, you just join a church. You go to church and that makes you a Christian. Really? Why didn't he just say, instead of, instead of him hanging on the cross, why didn't he just put two signs up there on the cross and said, you want to go to heaven, get baptized and join the church. Be back later, God. What's the point? The point is, those won't save you. That's something you do. That's something you try to buy your way in with. You can't. It's free. It's free. You know, there's an, it's an incredible thing. And some of you, as you move up the ladder here spiritually and you start working with me, and some of you are already there, you start working with me with people on a counseling level, you know what you're going to find? I had a lady call me one time. I used to run an ad in a phone book, and I used to get a lot of people saved through this little ad. We're going to do it again sometime when we get ready, but we ain't ready for the deluge. But I used to run a little in there and says, a, a biblical Bible-based counseling. I'll help you with any problem, marital, you know, whatever the case may be. And I used to get phone calls of people that were obviously going through some tough times. And we would talk about it, and I'd try to help them, and they would say to me, well, how much does your, how much does your counseling service cost? And I'd say, it's free. They'd go, oh. <laughs> you know why they go, oh? Because in this world, if it doesn't cost a lot of money, it isn't worth anything. That's the mindset of this world. So I changed my, I changed my, I changed my whole deal, my whole approach to get around that. The next time the person I asked, I said, because I was tired of the uh, 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 uh. So I figured I can do better than this. So the next time the lady asked me, she said, well, how much does it cost? And I said, you know what? It's more, it'll cost you more than all the money in this world. All the money in ten worlds. But you know what? Somebody's already covered the cost for you if you want to come in. That worked a lot better. So I got the one idiot said, well, I'm not coming. Can I just have the money instead? <laughs> no. These charismatic preachers, I love it. They love it. You ever go to a healing service? You ever go someplace where they put up the tents or in sometimes churches? There have been some churches that when they do the healing thing and they get you all hyped up and everybody wants through coming through this thing, you know. There have been some places. I even knew a couple of churches where somebody, somebody told me this. It's not making it up. Somebody told, they went to one of these churches and they locked the back doors and until they got enough in the offering, nobody got out. 
And they're looking at things that ain't enough. Plus, God run her by one more time. And people were coming forward and getting healed. And people with crooked legs were getting straight legs out of it. And the whole nine yards. And, and, and I look at that stuff. And the only thing dumber than the people doing that are the people that are sitting there. Hey, my Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, I think it's verse 18, Jesus himself said, you freely receive, you freely give. How in the world do I charge you? Honestly. You come in to me. I know churches and I know pastors that they, with their own people in their church, they come in and they got some serious problem because the guy's got a Ph.D. or he's got some kind of uh, shingle on the wall that uh, he, he, he will help you, and, but then he charges you to do it. How in the world do I charge you to fix your life when God did it for me for nothing? How do I charge you anything when the price was already paid on account? There are some of the biggest crooks in Bible Christianity in the world today. They're not in prison. They're in churches. They're in churches. You know what my beef is with pastors and churches? My biggest beef? And I stay away. I don't get involved in it. I just, I just like my own little world here, and I'm in happy in it. I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there ain't nobody in the world except me and you guys. But you know what my biggest beef is 24-7? <clears throat> Churches and pastors are always asking their people to give, 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 24-7. And they're not willing to give you back anything. I know churches in town that send you letters out uh, for wanting money. There's one church in this town when you got your, they're already sending a letter out. When you get your rebate check back, we're in financial help. Would you send that in to us? They'll get up there and preach 15 minutes on the Bible and 45 minutes on giving money, and next week it'll be the son of giving money, and the week after that'll be the son of giving more money. And yet you want to go in and talk to them or get a problem in your family and your marriage or your individual life, you know what? They ain't got time for you. And if you want to get married in that church, oh yeah, you can get married. This is your church. We're glad to have you get married in it. It'll be $800. My biggest beef, my biggest beef with churches and pastors, it's all about taking from the people. Give, 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 money, 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 money. Now yet, at the same time, you know what? There's a balance in that, and I understand the balance. I really do. I understand the concept of the Bible and giving. I, I, the bottom line is this, and I'll just tell you this. You may not like it, but I don't care. If you've been in this church for a year and you call this church your home and you aren't tithing yet, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Excuse me. Amen, Brother Bob. That's telling it really good. <laughs> Somebody says, well, I don't think you ought to have said that. What are you going to do, quit giving? Couple people are so funny. Couple about two years ago, a couple, a couple came into my thing, and they were they, not nice people, but you know. But I knew from day one they weren't going to make it here. And they were here for like, uh, they, you know, been around forever. And they come in and and they said, uh, "Well, we're going to leave the church." And I said, "Okay, fine, praise the Lord." And well, I mean, you know what? You didn't come to say, "Should we leave your church?" We have a problem. Will you help us so we don't leave your church? I mean, I figured you had your mind made up. Say, I'm not going to fall into that trap, because normally when you do, then they want to hit you with something. See? So I just said, okay, thank you. And they said, well, aren't you going to, I mean, I'm ready to go. You know, you know what, this wasn't long, it took 30 seconds. This is a pretty good counseling appointment, you know. I can get on and do something else. And they said, well, aren't you, don't you, don't you, don't you want to know why? And I said, no, no. I said, the bottom line is you would have told me if you wanted me to know. You just came in and said, you're leaving. And uh, they said, well, why don't you care? And I said, well, I don't, it's not that I don't care, but evaluating our conversation and now that you've told me what you're going to do, I just thought this thing through. 
What ministry do I shut down next Sunday because you're not there? You don't do anything. Realize that there's some of you that if you come to me and say, hey, Bob, I'm leaving the church. If you come tomorrow and tell me I'm leaving the church, I got to scramble by next Sunday to get probably four or five people to fill in what you do. You realize that some people in any church, they come up and they say, we're not going to be back next week. It makes no difference. I mean, I don't want to see you go, but the bottom line is, it doesn't affect the ministry anyway. You're not working with anybody. What ministry shuts down? What ministry shuts down next week because if you die? I mean, if I got a call from your wife or, and your wife says to me, Bob, so-and-so died today. And I, first thing I'm going to say is, am I in the will? No, first thing I'm going to say is, first thing I'm going to say is, if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's the right person, I'm going to say to myself, wow, I, get a, I feel terrible, but you know what? That guy was doing nine things for me. The bigger this church gets, the more you're going to have to take responsibility. You know why? You know why? You know why you don't do anything in this church? Some people. And I'm not saying you guys. I'm just saying people in general. You know why people? I better better rephrase. You know why people in general don't do things in churches? You know why they don't get involved in ministry? Now, and I'm saying this: if you've been in this church at least a year, I'm not even talking to you. Now, please, and this is the way it always happens, you know. You had somebody been in church for six months, and they think I'm talking to them. I'm not talking to you. Man, you're in here, you're getting your feet on the ground, and most part, you're all doing wonderful. I'm not even talking about that. I'll give you a year, year and a half, but I'm just saying is this. I mean, when you look at this whole thing and you put it together, you've got to look at this thing. Hey, what, what this church should make a difference in your life. And you know what else? Your life ought to make a difference in this church. Is it? You know why I work with you going through things that you struggle with? And I've told you guys this before many times one-on-one. You know why when you come in with problems and heartaches? How many times have I told you this? You come into problems and heartaches and you've got some issue in your life you're struggling with. You know why I spend so much time with you? You know why I get people around you to help you? You know why I'll do anything in the world to get you where you get back? You know why? i got an ulterior motive. I might just be honest with you. You know what my ulterior motive is? I want you to get through this. I want you to have the victory. I want you to get this thing worked out in your life. So down the road, when I have somebody else come in that's got the same problem, you can help me with them. Amen. That's all. That's it. This church ought to change your life, and your life ought to change this church. It just should. I mean, if your wife called me on the phone and said so-and-so died, or even a husband called and said my wife died, and the first thing I'm thinking in my mind, wow, what am I going to do getting this covered? They did such a good job. They did the work that's going to take five people to cover the, cover the thing. What am I going to do? You know why? I'll tell you. People don't get involved in churches. They don't get involved in those things because they don't make any investment in it to begin with. Not important to you. Not important to you. It's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. And the first thing I look at around here, you know, we went out to Las Vegas a number of years ago and we were speaking in a church out there. We'd never been in Las Vegas before and everybody says you've got to go see the... I guess in the, in, in the casinos in Las Vegas they got some of the greatest buffets that you ever had in your life you know they're open 24 hours i mean they're just like the grandioso thing so you know we said hey we want to go eat at one of those buffets i mean no you know what i i want to go and uh you know what and so we were in there and you know i told the bar we looked around and she was over gambling i know i just want to try to get her out of there you, know, you can laugh all you want i put my court we had one we had, we both said we're going to put one quarter in and then we're going to end i put mine in and it was over she put one in and all these cherries came up she won six million four hundred forty three dollars on one quarter no, i'm just kidding I walked in that place, and it was incredible. 
it was, you stood here, and then fanning out from all the way around was everything you could imagine to eat. I'm telling you, I mean, for $34 or whatever it was, it was just everything. And I'm saying to myself, man, I wish that I wore my pocket with the big pants in them, with the big pockets in them. And I'm walking over here, man, and there's, there's barbecued stuff, and there's Chinese stuff, and there's Italian stuff, and then there's whatever this stuff is, and there's salads, and there's shrimp, and there's oysters, and everywhere you look, there's every drink you can want, the dessert bar is just, oh, it's like Big Rock Candy Mountain, man. I mean, it's everywhere, every place you go, and you're standing with your plate, and you're hungry, but now you've got the worst decision in your life. Where do I start, and when do I finish, man? I mean, I don't want to screw this up. If I eat something that's going to fill me up, then I won't get all the other stuff that I want. I've got to do this by strategic. Eat the small stuff first, you know, go on this thing, and, thing. and I think, when I went in there years later, I thought to myself, you know what? That's exactly the way I want this church to be with the Bible. I want you to walk in here, and I want it to be displayed from one end to the other. All you can have, all you can eat. Come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime, the old song says. I never want you to leave here hungry, spiritually. Never. And I don't do it physically. We have our, we have our barbecue thing out there, you know, Memorial Day picnic. I mean, in my mind, and I know this is probably goofy, I'm envisioning the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everybody just having a great time. And you think, you know, most churches, you go eat someplace and they give you one little burned up hot dog. No, I, I'm so sick of it. Sick of it. And the pastor gets up there and he wants to impress you. He says, well, what are we having to eat? We're having tube steaks. That's hot dogs. Tube steaks. That's a cute little Baptist way of saying, you're going to starve to death and I'm charging you six bucks to do it. Okay? So you pay all this money, six bucks a pop. You walk in there, and his hot dog, little weenie, looked like it's been dead for 140 years, you know. <laughs> Noah had them left on the ark, and they threw them out, and this pastor found them, and he's cooking them for me, you know. And, and they're the grossest things you ever want you see. And you know what? And when you go down there, you know, I, I'm, I like to eat. I know you guys do. Some of you gals do. It's okay. It's okay. But you go down there, you know, and they, and they get the people serving it out, you know, and they just get the smallest spoon they can find. And then they put this on here. By the time you get done, you look at this thing and you said, and I, my wife and I always go through, I look at hers and I say, your hot dog's bigger than mine. Give me that one. <laughs> you take this one. Go. I made up my mind when I start my own church and have this thing, you know what? You're going to get fed. You get all the ribs you can eat. You can get all this you can eat. Nobody's standing there doing them all. You want to come back for more, you can come back all you want. You know why? Because the church isn't about just taking from you. It's about giving to you. You don't have a Bible this morning. This church will give you one. Don't cost you nothing. You want a Bible? You don't have a Bible? We'll give you one. We'll give you a Bible. You want to get a CD this morning's or anything we've got? You don't have the money? We'll pay for it. Take it. The churches all the time, they want back from people. They want you to give. You give, give nothing back. It's a two-way street, man. You say, well, we're going to play volleyball. We're playing softball. It costs $25 to get in because it costs us $2,500 to pay for the fields and all this stuff and all the equipment. Somebody said, boy, I'd like to play. I don't have $25. You know, things have been tight. Play, man. We'll take care of it. We don't exclude anybody from anything. You know why? That's the ministry. The ministry is giving, not getting. The ministry is giving. It doesn't matter. And I know what you say. Somebody's going to say, well, you know what? That's a good place to get ripped off. Hey, you want to rip me off? Rip me off. I don't care. We get to heaven. I'll stand over there and look at you a lot. I'll know exactly what you did. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> it's free. 
that's free. Bless God, it's free. You couldn't pay for it. You couldn't do anything to get it. We don't deserve it. It's free. How do I say to somebody, yes, I'll solve your problem for $40 an hour. Oh, yeah, I'll win you to Christ, but it's going to, but we got to pay for this session here. How do you do that? How do you take what God gave you and charge somebody else for it? We got the little parenting books over there. Six bucks covers the cost of getting them done. You don't have the money? Take it. How to study the Bible? Take it. Whatever you need, you can't afford it? Take it. You can't say, give, 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 and not give something back. Does your marriage work that way? With your children, does it work that way? Tell me what in life works that way. But we get the idea that churches work that way. No, they don't. No, they don't. Verse 25 through 31. What a great concept here. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but of the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. He is the God of the Jews only. Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, we do then make void the law through faith. God forbid, yea, we establish the law. I'm telling you what, verse 26 down through here is the great declaration that God has given His righteousness to man. Now, I want to bring you through. And I want you to get these down if you're serious about understanding. I, I, I mean, winning people to cry. There's, uh, there, there, there's 12 great doctrines that form the building blocks of your salvation. You don't understand them. And you will never fully appreciate nor will you fully complete what God has for you in your life. Because your whole Christian life is built on these 12 foundational doctrines of salvation. They form your attitude. They form your attitude of heart. They form your purpose in life. They form everything about you. And in winning somebody to Christ or dealing in the ministry, ladies and gentlemen, it's the difference between repeating what you've heard me say or somebody say and leading a soul to Christ and knowing what really took place. Twelve doctrines. Twelve tribes of Israel. The Bible says in John 4, 22, salvations of the Jews. Twelve of the greatest basic fundamental doctrines that you'll ever, ever get in your life that show you how and everything aspect of your get saved. The first one is called the doctrine of justification. We hear that word all the time. But what does justification mean? What does the justification mean? You know what justification is? It's the declaration by God that you and I are righteous even when we're not. When you get saved, He takes you into Him. We're still a garbage can. We're just a shiny garbage can. And yet God declares to all the world that we are righteous because we have been justified when absolutely we are really not. You know what? You know what He said about David? 
He said over there in the book of Acts, David, uh, David, he was a man after God's own heart. He said, David did what was right all the days of his life, except in the matter he ride a Hittite. You know what? That's not true. That's not true. Now, either God just blank lied, or God knows something I don't know. When the Holy Spirit of God said he did what was right all the days of his life, except in one matter to the right of Hittite, that simply is not true. It doesn't take into account that he had five other wives that was a violation of the law. It doesn't take into account that he lost faith and ran from Saul and hid in the cave. It doesn't take into account that when one of the kings got him, he was so paranoid and so afraid that he acted like he was mad and spit it all over himself and the king didn't kill him because they thought he was nuts. It doesn't take into account that how he ran from Absalom, how he ran from Saul his whole life. It doesn't take into account how his family was a mess, how he didn't do what was right. He never brought any of those things up. You know why? Because once God imputed his righteous to him, even though he was unrighteous, God saw him righteous, justified. Justification. Somebody says, what's justify mean? Just if I never sinned. That's what it means. That's what it means. Justified, never sinned. God declaring me righteous when I'm really not. Then the great second doctrine is the doctrine of redemption. The payment. Redemption is the payment made by God to buy the sinner back from God's wrath. That's why the Bible says you're bought with a price. The number one thing that's locking in God's people's minds today, their hearts today, that allows them to be part of the world and live like the world, do the things of the world, if they don't understand the doctrine of redemption, the payment made by God to bury the sinner back from God's wrath. Along with that is the great doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation is the price paid to satisfy the demands of a holy God against sin ah but you say to yourself well bob then what is the difference between redemption and propitiation if redemption that great doctrine is the payment made by god to buy the sinner and the doctrine of propitiation is the price paid to satisfy the demands of a holy god against sin what's the difference ha <laughs> ha yes here's where it comes redemption redemption is the payment that is made Propitiation is the payment accepted by God. It wasn't enough that Christ paid it. God had to accept it. Propitiation is the satisfying of a holy God as to my sin debt. Oh, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. If you've been saved, think you're saved this morning and you've been baptized and that's your salvation, or you think you do some good work, that's your salvation, or you think you join some church someplace sometime and that's your salvation, I'm telling you, that's not your salvation. You know the difference between me and you? None of those things would save me. I'm a rotten, guilty sinner, deserve to be in hell. You know the difference between me and you? You got whitewashed. You put a coat of paint to cover your sins. You got whitewashed. I got washed white. I got the blood that covered my sins. Washed them away. I don't make any pretense. Yes, 
I deserve to be in hell. Yes, I don't deserve any of this. I deserve to agonize in a lake of fire for eternity. But oh, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of propitiation, then the doctrine of remission. You see, the doctrine of the doctrines come down through this. We got the doctrine that paid for it. We got the doctrine that accepted it. Now we got the doctrine that applies it. Doctrine of remission. The payment of sin is now applied to my account. You are forgiven. The debt that you owed. And I'll tell you what. All these are the foundation. But these are the keys that, of the successful Christian life. When you understand who you are, where you've come from, and then you realize what God has done for you when you didn't deserve it, how do you ever hold anything against anybody ever again? How do you not view, and this is what you've got to learn to do, every circumstance of life, every brick thrown at you, every downside of life, every problem you have, you have to look at and view it through who you are, where you came from, how God saved you, what He's done for you. And very frankly, after that, the rest of the world doesn't look bad. The doctrine of remission, the payment of sin is now applied to your account. And you are forgiven the debt that you could not pay, that you owed, but it was remitted. Key to forgiveness. The next one is the doctrine of expiation. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. This is the act of purging, burning out your sin. Of cleansing sin. You see, son, in these doctrines, it shows you sin is paid for. Sin, the payment is accepted. The payment is applied. But all oh, when you get to this one, oh, your sin's gone. Gone! That old song, gone, 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 gone. Now my sins are gone. I have Jesus in my heart. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. Oh, bless God, my sins are gone. They're gone. They're gone. They're G-O-N-E. Gone. They're gone. Amen. Glory to God, they're gone. Praise God, they're gone. You know, some of you don't know that. Can I save you a little embarrassment when you get home to heaven? Just let me give you a little helper here. Because I know some of you aren't going to learn this. And some of you will forget this. And so you're the one that's always worrying about God coming down and flattening you like a bug, you know. Well, let me help you. Now, I'm sure this won't go very far, but maybe you'll remember. Some of you, when the rapture takes place, you're going to get up there and you're going to, everybody's around, everybody's joy is having a great time and you're saved and you're up there. But you never got this stuff. You never paid attention. You never understood the great doctrines of salvation that, that build into everything in your life. So you're up there and you're worried to death. God's going to, he's just, he's just, and I know how your mind works. You know, he's just pretending he doesn't know I'm here because he, in a minute he's going to peer everybody back and he's going to put me on the spot. He's going to whack me good. And you think everybody's around the Lord and the Lord's just saying, hey, we're glad you're here. You know what? We're going to have a great time. Boy, I tell you, everything is going. And uh, you're over there in the corner. You're saying, oh boy, boy, we leave. Boy, I got to face him with all this stuff. I didn't do anything down there. And so finally, this gets the best of you, and there's a, there's a place in the time in, up in heaven where everything gets quieted down. And I think it's that place in Revelation where there's silence in heaven in the face of half an hour, you know, and you walk over to the Lord and you say, Lord, 
I talked to you a minute. You, I need you to be God here for a second. Right. I said, Lord, I, can, I, can I talk to you alone here a minute? Lord, come here. Lord, you know. Gee, Lord, you put your arm around me. I like that. Come on. <laughs> Lord, you know, I, I, I just, I got to tell you, Lord, you know, I screwed up a lot down there. And I just, you know, and I, I didn't do what was right. And I, 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 I got to tell you, I'm just, I'm glad I'm in heaven, but I'm just dying over this thing. I just got to tell you, I did this and I did that and I didn't do this right. And I didn't do it how I should have done. And, and I just, you know, I just, I'm here now and I just want to make the best of this. And I'm really trying to do what's right. And I just, I just want to tell you, I'm just, I just, I got to tell you now, here it is. This is what I did. And I'm just, I'm just want you to know that I'm glad I'm here and I'm sorry I let you down. And you're going to go on for about, and of course, there's no time in eternity. You may sit down, God. Thank you. There, there's no time in eternity. It's going to go on for a while. And you're going to look up at God and you're going to be talking to him. He's going to be looking down at you with the most, with the most concerning face looking at you. And he's going, to, he's going to listen to you and he's going to say, and, then he, and you're done. You're going to say, so Lord, you know, I don't know. You want me to go back to hell for a while? I will, you know, tribulation period. I'll be glad to. You know, I know I don't deserve to be up here. God's going to look at you and he's going to say, you did all those things? You're going to say, yeah, I really did. He's saying, hmm, I'd forgotten all of that. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone! Let me tell you something. When you sin and don't do what's right, confess it to God, you know what you best better never do? Don't ever bring it up again. Don't remind him of it. It's gone. It's gone. When I get to heaven, I want to run by him so fast, run around and do cartwheels so fast, and it's going to be a blur. And everybody's going to, because I'm going to be a finally a play, and I'm going to know it's gone. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. Expiation. Cleansing of sin. You know why in the Old Testament that's why they burned the sacrifice? You know when they, when they did the Passover lamb back in Exodus chapter 12 and they burned that, you realize that the Bible says it had to be a complete burning? Nothing could be left till morning? Everything in that sacrifice had to be totally burned and consumed. You know why? Because by morning it was all gone. And by morning there was nothing left of the sacrifice. And it pictured that when he died on the cross for you, there was not, when you get saved, there's not one of your sins that are left. Paid for them all. We use the expression, preachers use it all the time. Well, when you get saved, God puts your sins as far as the east is from the west. How many heard somebody say that? You know what that means? East is from the west. East to the west. That is the route from east to west that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make that sacrifice on the altar, and that's where it ended. Your sins ended up on that cross as the lamb was burned, and that lamb got burned up totally, and your sins are gone. Expiation. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. Who am I to hold your sins against you? Who am I to get an attitude about your life? And, and I know that the things you do to screw up the ministry, we've got to deal with that. But in your personal, who am I to judge you where you're at when God's taken all mine away? I'll help you with it. And maybe I have to hold you accountable with it. But the bottom line is, it never gets personal to me. You know why? Because my sins are gone this morning. They're gone. And then we got the next one, the doctrine of imputation. Imputing God's righteousness. That's the act where God, God whereby he, he charges my sin to his son, and then he takes the righteousness of his son and charges it back to me. Oh, man. He imputed his righteousness to me. I don't deserve it. He imputed it to me. He took my unrighteousness and put them on his son and then took his son's righteousness and gave it to me. Every aspect of the Christian life found in these great principles. Every one of them. 
Then the seventh one is the doctrine of regeneration. That's the act of salvation in which the Holy Spirit of God enters the sinner and gives us a new life by a new birth and a new spirit. Adam lost it and now I get it back through the regeneration, my ability to fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit of God. The eighth one is the doctrine of recon reconciliation. The act where two warring parties, me and God, are brought together and appeased through the death of Christ. The doctrine of spiritual circumcision. We talked about it in Colossians chapter 2. How that at the moment of salvation, the operation of God made without hand and cutting off the sins of the flesh from the soul. God separates you out so He can dwell in you, have a relationship with you. The doctrine of adoption. The act where God takes a sinner from the devil's family and through the new birth in Christ and the justification and all the things that we've talked about, God puts him in his family through an adoption. You know, there's two adoptions in the Bible. One's physical and one's spiritual. They're all laid out in Romans chapter 8. But the doctrine of the, adopt the adoption of you and me into Christ's family is an incredible part of salvation. The doctrine of sanctification. The act whereby the time of salvation God sets us apart. That's really what the act of spiritual circumcision does. It sets your soul, which is now sealed, away from your flesh, which is unsealed. That's the garbage. There's the new can. This is the garbage. I told you the last couple of weeks, after you get, before you're saved, you're stuck to a dead corpse. After you're saved, you're not stuck to it anymore, but you're stuck with it. And the garbage will always be in the can, no matter how bright and shiny the can is. But I'm telling you. You see, when you don't understand this thing, when you don't understand this process, this is why some of you are saved this morning, but you still do the things that the world does. This is why. If you fully don't understand the impact of you being saved, if you fully don't understand what, and that when I talk about a person getting saved, these 12 doctrines come into play at the instant, at the moment of salvation. Now, do I expect you when you're winning somebody to Christ to go through every one of these? No, you'll be here till tomorrow morning. And they don't have the ability. It's not for them to understand that point in their life. God has given them the measure of faith and the measure of grace to understand salvation. But it is up to you to understand it who are dealing with them. And you need to know it for them at that point. You don't know why you do what you do. Then why do you do it? Doctrine of sanctification, sanctification is the act whereby at the time of salvation God sets us apart from the world. This is why you'll never serve God in this church and be have one foot in the world. Can't do it. If you can't leave the things of the world behind that make you smell like the world, look like the world, and talk like the world, you know what? I love you with all of my heart, but you've got to understand the doctrine of sanctification. You've got to be set apart. And then the last one, and I've got to tell you, this one's my favorite. We've looked at the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of propitiation, the doctrine of remission, the doctrine of expiation, the doctrine of, of uh, imputation. Then we looked at the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of reconciliation, the doctrine of spiritual circumcision, the doctrine of adoption, and then the doctrine of sanctification. The last one is my favorite. It's the doctrine of glorification. Amen. Whatever you're going through right now, don't lose sight. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're, whatever you're dealing with, whatever is the albatross around your neck, the anvil around your ankles, whatever is pulling you down today, whatever is keeping you down, I got some news for you. Don't focus on that. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, For I reckon 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us in that day. There's coming a day I'm going to cast off this old body. This thing that's given me fits all my life. I'm going to lose this dead man. And I'm going to lose this old body and I'm going to be glorified. You know the greatest thing about heaven to me? The greatest thing about being with God to me? It ain't the angels, it ain't the wings, it ain't the eternity, it ain't the plan. The greatest thing, the greatest thing to me about heaven and eternity is finally, 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 Bob Alexander will be in a place where everything he says, everything he thinks, and everything he does will please God. I'm sick of this old world. I'm sick of the heartache. I'm sick of the pain. I'm sick of the disappointment. I'm sick of the death. I'm sick of the dying. I'm sick of the politics. I want to be set free. And I'm set free inside. But glory to God, when that old trumpet sounds and I hear my name, get out of my way. I'm blasting off. The doctrine of glorification. Don't get hung up on this old world. Don't let it get you down. Don't let it focus on where you're at. Had a couple of ladies come and see me last week, and I won't tell you their names because I don't want to take away what God's blessing for them, nor do I want to embarrass them. Probably one of the most meaningful times I've had since I can remember. Two sharp gals. And they've been coming a while, and then God's been obviously been working with them, in them. I've talked to them one-on-one, and I, I, I see the potential that's there. But they both had themselves ca- caught up in a, in a career move that was just eating up everything of their time. And, uh, and, and, they, and I, independent of, before, I never talked to them about this before they came in. They saw me last Sunday, and they said, we need to come see you. We've got to have an emergency meeting. Oh, wow, you know, I'm thinking, okay, what's this all about, you know? And I said, that's fine. And she said, and we got it, we got it. And so they come over that night. And I tell you what, I sat there, and they, here's what they said. They said, you know what? We're both, going, we're both going to school to pursue a career that we want to have. And right now that school is taking up so much of our time. And after the last three or four Bible studies Thursday night, what we've been going through in the Book of Romans, and we now know where we're at with all this. You know what, Bob? We have come to the conclusion that we don't need to do that because that isn't going to win place or show at the judgment seat of Christ. And what I wanted to ask you and want to talk to you about is this. We want to quit our school. We're still going to keep our job, but we're going to quit this extra school that's taking all this time because it's meaningless, it's purposeless. And what I want to do now is take the rest of the time I got and I want to dedicate it working with people and helping them with Christ. I made them a promise that night. I said, if you're willing to do that, And that's what you're willing to do. I guarantee you I will work with you and I will keep you so busy working with people in this church. Let me tell you, that kind of commitment, that kind of commitment is what I'm talking about. Nobody twisted them in it. They didn't do it because they were trying to get some notoriety out of it. Nobody even knows who they are. They come in because the Holy Spirit of God had worked in their heart. You know why? Because they come to the conclusion that this church had made a difference in their life and now it's time for their lives to make a difference in this church. And I don't know what else to tell you. It's just that simple. Now, I'm not saying that so you all go out and quit whatever you're doing. That's not my point. My point is let God speak to you. Let God have you. I don't care if you're 80 years old, 60 years old, which is looking better to me all the time, or 50 years old or 40 years old or 20 years old, wherever you're at in life, whatever you've got to give left, give it. 
give it. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. The doctrine of glorification, the ultimate end of the saved sinner. Now I'm completely like Christ and ready for the real work, eternity. Now I look back and I, I feel I feel so foolish of the things that I worried about in this life that God had covered. That he had made, I'll look back and I'll feel so stupid because he had all the, all the pitfalls covered, all the turns straightened out, all the crooked places worked out. All I had to do was just get in that book and follow the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God and it went okay. But oh no, not Bob. Worth it. The concept of getting God's righteousness and becoming justified in His sight are found and bound within these 12 doctrines of salvation that are absolutely key to you understanding ministry, absolutely imperative you understanding yourself, and absolutely crucial that you understand it how you deal with other people. It affects your viewpoint. It affects your attitude. It'll affect your lifestyle. It'll affect the friends you hang out with. It'll affect who you marry or who you don't marry. It, it'll, it'll all come into play when you understand the price that was paid for you and I to sit here this morning. The price that was paid for you and me to have a Bible that we don't bother to read most of the time. The price that was paid to come to church and hear the Word of God until you get a better deal on Sunday morning. The price that was paid for you to be at Thursday night when you get the Word of God laid out and get all your questions answered. But you got something else that's more important to be there. We'll never understand till we get to that point where we realize, realize the price that was paid. Those 12 things I gave you, as far as an earthly person can get, as close to it as you can get, as, as far into it as you can get, understanding those 12 things gets you as close to understanding on this side of what it all is, the price that was paid. Remember back a couple of months ago, maybe four or five months ago now, I gave you, I gave you the seven characteristics of God. Truth, love, light, forgiveness, long-suffering, giving, sacrifice. And I told you that those seven characteristics need to be the thing that you build in your life. But I want to tell you today, the only real way you can be like Christ and be Christ-like is to have them in your life. And the only way, these things in your life, these seven things, and the only way you're going to, you get them is to fully understand the doctrine of salvation based on the, those 12 doctrines. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might become rich. Listen, you'll never understand and you'll never become what God wants you to be for Him until you fully understand what He became for you. Now, it's just that simple. You can talk about it all you want. You can come over and see me 100,000 times a week. You can do everything in the world. You will never, you will never become what God wants you to be for Him and until you fully understand what He became for you. That has to be, there, the, life's too tough. There's too many things out there that, 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 that to glitter and gl glow that you run after, or that I run after. Too many things out there to get, our, get us off point, lose our focus. There has to be a driving force, folks, that keeps you and me right on track with what we've got to do and keeps us not looking at everything on the left and the right. You know what it is? It's the price that he paid for me. How do I do this? How do I do that? How do I let myself do this, think this, go here? Be part of this when I understand the price that he paid for me to get me out of that. Ah, you know what our problem is? Every one of us, every one of us, every one of us need a double dose of the understanding of those 12 basic Bible doctrines which mean the foundation of our salvation. Understanding the price tag that he paid, what it cost 
for you and me to sit here today and minister for him. Every, eye, every head bowed, every eye closed.